Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. In the book of Leviticus, we read the following in English. You shall count for your days from the day after the Shabbat, from the day when you bring the Omer of the waving, seven Shabbats, they shall be complete. Until the day after the seventh Sabbath, you shall count 50 days. And in Deuteronomy, we read the following. You shall count for yourself seven weeks from when the sickle is first put into the standing crop shall you begin counting seven weeks. Then you shall observe the festival of Shavuot for the Lord your God. So this uh, two paragraphs, uh, one from Leviticus and one from Deuteronomy, seems to suggest that Jews throughout the world are obligated to count the days from Passover to Shavuot. And this counting period is known as the counting of the Omer. And the Omer refers to the 49-day period between the second night of Passover and the holiday of Shavuot. The period marks the beginning of the barley festival when in ancient times, Jews would bring the first sheaves to the temple as a means of thanking God for the harvest. The word Omer literally means sheaf and refers to these early offerings. In another verse in Leviticus, um, it says, you shall count from the eve of the second day of Pesach, Uh, with an omer of grain to be brought as an offering. In this biblical context, the counting appears only to connect the first grain offering to the offering made at the peak of the harvest. But over time, as the holiday of Shavuot, one of the three pilgrimage festivals mentioned in the Torah, became associated with the giving of Torah, and not only with the celebration of agricultural bounty, The Omer period began to symbolize the thematic link between Passover and Shavuot. While Passover celebrates the initial liberation of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt, Shavuot, which literally means weeks, identifying it with the counting of seven weeks, marks the culmination of the process of liberation when the Jews became an autonomous community with their own laws and standards. Counting up to Shavuot in metaphoric means reminds us of this process of moving from a slave mentality to a more liberated one. This morning, I want to chat with you about um, Shavuot, the Omer, and the similarity between this counting and that which is called Pentecost in the Christian tradition. To share with me in this conversation, I've invited Linda Privatera, an associate priest working part-time at All Saints Anglican Church in Westboro in Ottawa. Linda holds a Master's in Divinity from Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut 
and a doctorate in ministry from the Episcopal Ministry in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I want to welcome you to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, and how would you like me to address you? As uh, Reverend, or by your first name? Linda is just fine. Great. So, Linda, welcome. Thank you. Um, and as you've heard, this morning I hope we can talk about uh, the parallels um, between Pentecost and the counting of the Omer. So, Inasmuch as I've offered an introduction to the Omer, perhaps you can offer an introduction into what is Pentecost. Well, for Christians, Pentecost is a holiday, um, a fairly significant holiday, and it, it occurs 50 days after the celebration of Easter. And um, it's also a liberation festival in 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 some ways, in that um, the followers of Jesus had gathered in Jerusalem, and um, and I guess from many places, along with many other people, certainly celebrating um, at the temple. When it, those followers of Jesus who who were very frightened um, because of his death began to feel the power of God's Spirit moving in them in a way that was uh, liberating. So they moved from fear to proclamation, feeling that they could um, become, I guess it was the formation of the early church. So it, it's kind of a big deal for us. Um, it's the only day in the liturgical cycle for Christians when we change to the color red and um, embrace uh, passion and um, proclamation in a, in a way that, that um, is meant to be enlivening for all, the, all, of, all Christians. And I think the other piece that may be interesting is that the prophetic movement in the Christian tradition then went not just from um, a small leadership group whom we had called the apostles, but it, it but the spirit kind of in in reference to the text from Joel um, moved among all people and spread out into the world. So it became less of a small group of individuals and more a collective that was um, moving under God's spirit. So that's, that's kind of uh, a summary. Well, thank you for that. Um, some of the listeners um, will have um, greater or lesser knowledge about Pentecost, as some of the listeners will have greater or lesser knowledge about the Omer. <laughs> but I want to ask a couple of clarifying questions that come to me. Um, as I understand it, Pentecost is the day that celebrates the coming of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Is that a fair way to uh, categorize it? Yes. Yes, that's, that's correct. And when I was uh, first in rabbinical school, lo those far too many years ago, <laughs> um, the roommate of a very close friend of mine 
was someone who spoke gloss. Oh, glossolalia. Thank you. Yes. Um, speaking in tongues. Yes. And she would always tell me, even on the a couple of occasions that she allowed me to come to her prayer meetings, that this was the Holy Spirit uh, resting within her. And I think she would quote Acts to me. Uh, yes. Acts 2, I think. Yeah, um, Acts. That's where the um, story begins, yes. Right. So... Is the Holy Spirit that we that Christians associate with Pentecost the same Holy Spirit that this lovely um, Christian woman would speak of mm. when clearly not every uh, Christian in the world um, speaks in tongues or sees that as an imperative? Correct. So I'm just asking... Um, so it's both yes and no. Okay, um, sounds very Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think there is a group of Christians called Pentecostalists. Coming who, from the word Pentecost. Yes. Right? Um, Not vice versa, but Pentecost existed first. Yes. Okay. But they are, they are followers of, I would say, more the literal translation of that day. Okay. Where in, in Acts 2, the followers of Jesus um, began to speak in, in other languages um, so that the crowds who had gathered in Jerusalem could hear, could hear the, the um, disciples speaking about the mighty acts of God in their own language. So that was kind of a remarkable um, text in that, I think, let me see if I can get a hold of this. How is it? This is from um, Acts 2. Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own language, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. So there is um, a context in which, in the description of the day of Pentecost for mm -hmm. Christians, the acquisition of languages that were not their own, so the Galileans right. were speaking in languages not their own, about God and God's mighty deeds, um, certainly specifically for Christians, it would have been through the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, that people could hear this witness and understand it. So, um, and so for are, for yeah, those Christians who have a literal uh, rendering of the text, right? Um, it implies that there was some unique language that they were speaking. Correct. But for those who have a less literal, however one wants to identify them, um, how is that passage understood? Well, the passage then is understood um, in the less literal way. 
to mean that uh, believers or people who are Christian followers um, can expect the movement of the Spirit in their own lives, and mm-hmm. that, and not just in their own lives, but beyond them into the broader world. And part of it is the recognition of God's Spirit at work in all sorts of places, in all sorts of times, in all sorts of people. And it's more a recognition of um, kind of the mighty deeds of the power of God. So it becomes, for those Christians, it becomes more, um, I guess, less time-bound in terms of... um, a specific facility with a language that's not your own being used for a particular purpose, but more familiarity with this, the language of the Spirit, of God's Spirit moving. Which might refer right. to, yeah, yeah. Um, the language of the Spirit might refer to a language that the um, new church was trying to help um, its followers learn. Yes, yes. And that that recognition is still an ongoing challenge. Right. In fact, the challenge seems to me to be interesting in its parallels to Judaism. Um, Christians of many different uh, denominations will go to uh, church on Easter. Yes. Um, and many of them will be um, individuals who don't go on a regular basis. Yes, we call them priesters. <laughs> we uh, see them at Christmas and Easter. Right, and we have a twice-a-year group as well at the High Holidays for yes. Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. But Passover um, is one of the most observed festivals in the Jewish calendar, perhaps because people don't have to go to synagogue and yeah. they can observe it in their home. Yeah. But the similarity beyond the power of those two springtime holidays seems to me, and I wanted your response to this, that um, 50 days after Passover comes Mount Sinai and the Jews are offered the uh, opportunity for the revelation. Yes. Um, and as you know, in, in many the, of th- in the text, that's in right. The, yes. Um, and as you know, um, the revelation then became over time associated with the holiday of Shavuot, which, as I indicated in the introduction, may not have been the original purpose of it. And it seems to me that from the heights of Passover. Uh, Shavuot, which in many ways is a much more spiritual holiday, not a um, as powerful a historical event, um, gets lost in the Jewish calendar. And I'm wondering if that happens to Pentecost as well. After the power of the crucifixion story and the resurrection story, um, does the Uh, observance of the return of the spirit and the origins of the church somehow get lost to the average Christian in the liturgical cycle? Well, that's a great question, Steve. I I think that for those who um, come 
into the church seldom, except maybe on the major feast days. It may not be as big a deal. But for those who are within the church, Pentecost is a big deal. Because it, as it marks the beginning of um, the church, as we, as we would... Um, claim it. Right, yeah, and the parallelism the, there is that Sinai is the beginning of the Jewish people. Right. Then, right. then um, it's a day when we often baptize or uh, admit catechumenates of one form or another. Mm-hmm. It um, traditionally has been a day when the bishop, a bishop would visit and confirm young adults or older adults in their faith. Um, I think at some points in the church year in the church's history, rather, that would be the day that you would ordain priests hmm. uh, under the power of the Spirit. And certainly right. one of the traditional hymns that we use during Pentecost, a Latin hymn called Veni Sancti Spiritus, Come Holy Spirit, it's a chant, which is sung at every ordination by the gathered community as we await um, the ordination of people. And so that would be perhaps in the Anglican tradition and the Catholic tradition, but yeah. I'm guessing from what you said that... Um, uh, yeah, not so lit- much in the, Protestant, in the more Protestant right. um, arenas. Yeah, that's true. And so would Pentecost be a less powerful symbol in some of the mainstream Protestant churches? than in the Pentecostal or in the uh, Anglican and Catholic? Um, perhaps. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good answer. Perhaps. And I didn't mean to, as I said that, I said, oh, let me think. I'm putting her on the spot here. Well, the problem is, of course, that I'm most familiar with my own tradition. Of course, as and we all so, are. Um, right? When I do visit other denominations, I'm unlikely to be visiting during a major feast. Right, because you would be in your own church at that point. Yeah, yeah. So I have very little experience um, with with the Pentecostal tradition. So uh, I want to, again, since our show this morning is about parallelism, um, the 50 days of the Omer um, is traditionally observed with a blessing each day that counts the days of the Omer. And over the course of time, um, in an attempt to move from the uh, manipulation of numbers to the importance of the spirit, there are a variety of uh, spiritual traditions that have arisen around each day and each week. Some of them from the mystical tradition of Kabbalah, um, okay. And each of this, each of these attempts, is um, to create a more um, powerful uh, notion of what um, these fifty days can mean. I'm wondering if, in the church liturgy, there's anything parallel to that. You know, using the days themselves, whether you count ten plus forty or just fifty total, um, that. Um, offers to the individual worshiper and the individual believer um, a path through the weeks? Well, that's a, that's a great question. And the thing that comes to mind um, most prominently is, uh, I should say that we change 
the texts that we read. Mm-hmm. Now, um, for Anglicans, we read four sections of Scripture on a weekly basis. So something from the Hebrew Testament, always a psalm, then followed by a letter to, um, they're called the epistles, the letters to the, to the emerging churches, right. and then a reading from the Gospel. But during the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, we're not reading the Hebrew text unless it's embedded in the Book of Acts. So we read the Book of Acts as our first, as our first lesson. Now, not every church does that, but that's the recommend. Um, and why would that be? Because it, it takes the focus, it continues the focus on, on what's emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, not the from not the beginning. Yes. Yeah, so Acts, the Book of Acts is the full name. I think is the Acts of the Apostles, and it's uh, traditionally thought to have been the second well, penned by the same person who or persons who wrote the Book of Luke. So it's uh, the Gospel of Luke. So it's like um, Luke two. Right. So there's a continuation of of the history, more or less the history, and I use that um, loosely because it's only a a first-person witness account, right, or a limited group's witness account of of the early church as it emerges. So so the, the goal for the congregation is to pay attention to what is changing and how it's changing and how, um, how they're adding believers to their number and how they are empowered to continue to reach out in the world the way Jesus did with um, teaching and healing and um, uh, welcoming the stranger, the lost, and so on. So I think that's the biggest uh, change. The change in the... The the liturgy itself. In that the Hebrew... The text is is not is not read included. Yeah, and it sounds like that it's um, based on some sound um, liturgical um, considerations. Yes, that often people think um, clergy are capricious about <laughs> liturgical decisions. Yeah. Um, I'm sure never in your church, but certainly in <laughs> well, the Jewish I, you know, tradition. I've been known to call them the lectionary elves, but right. yes. Um, so, and they um, um, are not uh, easily convinced that um, clergy have given much thought to why they do what they do, or that the, <laughs> um, the, the um, particular decisions made um, fit within that. So, but it sounds like in, in this case, in the Anglican tradition, it's very uh, purposeful. It is very purposeful, and the, the color changes in terms of the liturgical vestments. You know, we do that um, to highlight the seasons. Right. Um, By the way, likewise in Judaism, for those listeners who may have never attended a synagogue at uh, Passover... And uh, the period between Passover and Shavuot, the colors in the sanctuary of the um, Torah scrolls 
uh, and the uh, parochet, the curtain that covers the scrolls changes from whatever the uh, normative colors are to white. Yes, and that's similar. Right. We do the same. So it's white from Easter to Pentecost. Correct. And on Pentecost, it's red. Right. And the season after Pentecost is green, which we sometimes call ordinary time, but the green highlights the growth, the growth in the community, um, and certainly Easter was originally um, a pagan spring festival. So the green was also related to um, the continuation. Right. Of, and once of again, just to share with the listeners the parallelism uh, at the Passover Seder, on the Seder plate um, are um, hard-boiled eggs. That are yeah. symbolic of um, the new season, the spring season. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've we've adapted that too, but we make them chocolate. <laughs> Not always. <laughs> well, I don't know which is worse, the sugar or the cholesterol. <laughs> yeah, right. um, so uh, I've wanted us to chat about these similarities because um, the Easter Passover season is often a time when uh, throughout the history of the Jewish people and the Christian uh, community, it has been a time for uh, division. Uh, For division. For division. You know, uh, anti-Semitism often reared its heads um, during uh, the Easter season or the accusation of... uh, blood libels at um, the Passover time. And in our sharing today about the similarities between the two traditions, it's interesting to note how easily we can speak about similarities where less than 500 years ago, um, that kind of... um, vocabulary was really foreign to our ancestors. And I think, yes, I I agree, and I also think that there were times when we did not, uh, we were not inclined to know each other or the traditions of another as well as we should. So we we seldom looked for common ground. We, We were looking for how we are not like them or not like the other. I mean, Uh, for our listeners, their churches, their home churches may be very uh, familiar with the notion of asking uh, members of the Jewish community, whether clergy or laity, to come to church and um, offer uh, a Passover Seder out of um, the resonance of the uh, Synoptic Gospels who talk about the Last Supper being a Seder. And though yes, they, but, they, they yeah. wouldn't have been the same thing, uh, much too early for the Seder, um, certainly there would have been Passover observances. That's pretty common. But our conversation about Pentecost and the Omer and the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the Revelation at Sinai doesn't seem to have easily made its mark on our churches and synagogues. No, I agree. I agree. And it's that, um, less, yeah. and I think perhaps it is due to what you um, spoke of earlier, which is that the feast days themselves may not be as prominent. 
so we um, are not certain about Shavuot. Right. Um, we're pretty clear about Pentecost as Christians, but right. we're not we're not entirely sure that there might be a parallel. Right. Well, I want to thank you for this conversation. Um, all too often, when we have these uh, overlapping theological constructs, um, we're caught in our own individual liturgical preparation and our own individual communities and don't have the opportunity to take a step back and think of commonalities. Um, so I do want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, we're taping just before Easter, and of course, as a uh, working clergy, this would be a very uh, busy time for you. It's a busy time. It's, uh, this evening is, um, is the Monday, Thursday. The, right. The, um, so we're, we're taping supper. just the day before Good Friday. Yes. Um, and though the show will not be aired until after Easter, um, it will be in the midst of the counting of the Omer and the Pentecost. I want to thank you for sharing time with me and our listeners. My guest today has been uh, Linda Privetera, um, uh, an associate priest at All Saints uh, Anglican Church in Westboro in Ontario. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom.